You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Hello, Richard, how are you? I'm good, I'm good, just packing. Ah, I noticed that. Well, what's with the parka and all of the camping gear? Well, you know, I mean, you know, as soon as you get outside of Texas, it's clearly going to be, you know, freezing. Yeah, well, I hope you brought extra socks. Uh, you know, check. It is, <laughs> it is a balmy 80 degrees out there in the hinterlands. I mean, you're going to freeze to death. What about, you know, uh, your rations? You're going to need food. You don't know if they have water burgers out there. Uh, I, well, I've got cheesy wopsits. Okay, okay, that'll work. And Monster Munch. All right, are, are you protected against the elements? Uh, well, I've stolen a bunch of t-shirts from film promotions. Perfect. So that's probably, that'll do. Well, they're really thin, so you're going to have to double up on those cheap t-shirts. That is true. Now, of course, you're going to have to keep hydrated. That's very important. It's a long march to where you're going. And, uh, you know, let's see, you're going to need some water, you're going to need Check. some, uh, let's see, you're going to need some salt pills. Check. You're probably going to need some kind of, you know, cold compress just to keep your neck nice and cool. Treble check. Uh, oh, I almost forgot. The most important thing, the one thing that you will not live a day without, you know what I'm talking about, Beer! Digital noise, indeed. Welcome to our my undisclosed location. We're yes. new digs today. We're, we're down in the down in the cellar. Yes, you know, well, we just kind of pay no mind to the bodies in the corner. They'll keep. They'll not interrupt us, and they're very quiet. They're You're very chill. So that's a good thing. It's nice and cool here in the basement. It's a it's wine and bodies, two things that do well in a cold, cold, uh, non clammy environment. <laughs> you know, so all those perfect. medieval dungeon masters and vinters, they knew what they were doing. Oh. <laughs> Well, bit of news, folks. I'm actually not going to be here for the next couple of months. Uh, I've got a bunch of projects that I'm working on, um, including a whole bunch of stuff for Digital Noise, obviously. But um, I'll be launching a, an exciting new project of my own in the next couple of months. And also, I've got a bunch of stuff going on over my own website, rmwhitaker.com, um, and all the regular stuff I do with the Austin Chronicle as well, so austinchronicle.com. Um, but so I'm not going away permanently. Uh, Marco just gets a bit of relief from me for, a ne- for the next couple of months, although I shall miss you. I shall miss you too. Aww. I'm gonna. They're gonna have to find some like cheap imitation of you. And where are you they mean, gonna Brian? find that? Well, okay, you know, <laughs> that's a good work. You know, how big is his beard now? Is it bushy like yours? No, it's all trimmed now. Like oh. it, like he is. I don't know how to do this show without a ginger. I mean, we I need just... that. <laughs> I, I'm just so conditioned to it oh. now. <laughs> You're just entranced by the by the redness of the beard. It keeps me focused. It's like a bull and the red flag. It just uh, keeps me on target. Speaking of being on target, non focus, but do the, the the housekeeping. So thank you as always for uh, tuning in to Digital Noise. Uh, your clearly your choice for home release news and uh, reviews. We do really appreciate it. Um, just remember, when you're watching this, when you're listening to this on the site, if you just scroll down, you can see uh, images of every single title we talk mm-hmm. about. If you click on those links, they will take you to Amazon, and there you can buy them straight through. Straight through, just easy peasy, no problem. Now, the great thing about that for us is that every time you buy a title. Uh, we get a little bit back from Amazon. This helps pay the bills. And it's not just the stuff you see here. If on that trip, from that click, you buy anything at all, we get a little bit back. So every little bit helps. So if you think you're buying that fridge or 
you, know, you go to Amazon Prime, or even now they've started doing. You, know, you can order food oh, in wow. certain cities. And you can get takeout. They will deliver oh, it to my. your home by drone. Or is that a thing yet? Uh, I no, want a pizza by drone. It yet. would be great. You know, just, just. You know, I'm just curious how just many of my neighbors will shoot it down. Slice by, slice by slice. Well, this now in the instant gratification society, we need things like that. But while you're out there, you could buy all the kinds of stuff you need. Like survival gear, if you're going on a long extended trip. Like, like me. Yes. You can buy all of your repelling gear, your crampons, your spikes, your mountaineering stuff. And I think you have an overinflated opinion of my ability to be to uh, <laughs> manage physical exertion in all the right. Texas summer. Not he, happening. He's just taking a bento box and a six pack that's it that's fair enough after about four hours he's doomed that's pretty much all I need (laughs) I'm English we're we're like camels just pack some extra lunchables they're light just a beer hubs Uh, but also then uh, if you look you can also uh, join the site uh, as a sustaining member, we do really appreciate that as well. You, uh, we have many people who have been with us for years, and one of the reasons they stick with us is because we have amazing exclusive content. There, uh, There's multiple levels that give you different content, uh, including exclusive commentaries, uh, the, the Breakfast Pub, which is our weekly news show, and it's great fun and is usually pretty beer-fueled, as, the, as it implies. Um, uh, all kinds of stuff that you really do want to tune in for. And, and you know, just thank you, as always, for listening to us. We, we really do appreciate it. Uh, so you know what we should do? The reviews. And we're going to start off with, you know, this up-and-coming local director in Austin. Um what else Rich, is he? I don't, I don't know. Rich, Rich, is it Linklater? 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 Is, is it Dutch? I don't know. It's, it, it sounds Norwegian. Yeah. yeah. Is no, he related to Art Linklater? This, this is Everybody Wants Some, which is Richard Linklater's uh, latest film, yes. uh, which was the one that he kind of he kind of made, and he'd been like going, oh, I'm going to do this spiritual successor to, to Dazed and Confused, and people went, Okay. Be interesting, and then it suddenly was done, and it was really weird. And like well, nobody really knew it was like being made, and like it's like it just done, flew finished. out the gate. Yeah, and and you know, actually, this is just so that you all know. For those of you who have not heard anything about this, though, for both of you who know nothing about this, world, <laughs> this is a really fun little movie. It's not; it's slight. I think it's very light. Link later, uh, and again, the spiritual successor hype about it be. Comparing it to Days and Confused is the obvious comparison to make, uh, except in the 70s, uh, you've got college-age kids right at the cusp of the it's, early 80s, it, well, it's, and it's, it's fun. It's, it's a very specific date yeah. in summer of 1980, like, and it actually is basically a three-day period mm-hmm. between this character, who who is Richard Linklater, basically. let's be honest, uh, turning up at college... And it's the few days of him hanging around in the um, the baseball uh, fraternity, fraternity house mm-hmm. because he's on the baseball team, um, and, and then getting ready for the first day of class. Yeah. That's really all it is. Yeah, there. This it's is very. A, it's very. There's knowledge of a plot, and there is a certain amount of character development that seems kind of forced when you consider it all happens over the span of a week. You know, at times there's so much events packed into this, you feel like it's a semester's worth. But really, it's the five days before the classes even begin. But the young cast is very engaging. It's a very improvisational. Feel to the everything, which was kind of nice. Which to is find weird out. because I actually got to talk to a couple of the cast yeah. members, and there is no improv. It feels very improv. Well, if no, you see no. the special features; they are obviously improvising. There's riffing, but like you know, it was so. This, the, the characters were so tamped down before they got there. Like they basically did what 
Blink later called the Bunkhouse. Mm-hmm. So they went out to his place in Bastrop and they just basically spent a couple of weeks there and just nailed everything down. There was nothing like on set. There's some playing around, but they they were also really surprised because they said we're really like we were pretty much what was on the page is what our, well, and it doesn't necessarily feel like that it may be that the uh, deleted stuff is just a few takes where he just let them play yeah that but they, they were very the much case. more like it was it was really organic because they done they did a lot of character development in the bunkhouse and a lot of evolution of the characters and you know some characters that were pretty minor become uh, much bigger yeah. you know and it's it, if the weird thing about this is that it doesn't necessarily feel like all the actors are on exactly the same page all the time. They, there's, there's moments well, where I'm some like, of these actors are athletes who were pulled from the UT baseball program, so their acting isn't really their main focus. But then but there, there are good then, then there are other ones who really are, and then you just kind of looking at them, going like, you. Some of them are too. Uh, uh, some of the, the performances are much bigger. Yeah, yeah, like almost. Yeah, there's one character who is you know totally do this this guy who thinks he's completely hot shit and it is he feels like he fell out of Animal House and he's a little bit too big and that's uh, that's uh, yeah uh, Tyler Hoechlin as McReynolds yeah. who is so big and huge and he's just kind of like yeah I mean the thing is it's 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 very Linklater in that it's very sweet mm-hmm. it you know he he likes people Linklater is yes. a fan of people um, but this is. Yeah, I mean, this is less a link later. It's slight, and you know, I, and it is incredibly autobiographical because the whole thing sure. about it is that you know it's this bunch of guys who turn up at college and they know most of them are never going to be pro players, and some of them are so just now like, having that realization. Yeah, so they're just kind of like, oh well, let's just hang out. And like, well, it's a hangout movie. That's really what it is. It's less about the plot, and it's more about just a bunch of interesting characters that you get to spend some time with as they kind of, you know begin to enjoy being young, free, and finally out of home without any responsibility. And while I always liked Dazed and Confused, when I saw that film, I was about 19 or 20, and that was a film about kids in their teens. Now that I'm in my 40s watching about a movie about a bunch of kids in their 20s, written by a guy who's probably in his 50s now, I'm not as connected to it. Uh, it's, it's purely nostalgic and Given how many good things Linklater has done, I'm more than willing to give him a pass to just take us down this little trip down memory lane. It's fun, but it's not essential. Yeah. It's very... Yeah. I, mean, I, I think the thing is, it, it's, I think it's quite hard for anybody who wasn't an American college student in the 80s to to connect with this at really any level. It's, such, it, it's a beautifully done period piece. Yes. But... It, it's a beautifully done, very personal period piece. That I'm kind of looking at it and going, and, uh, well, and I and imagine it does it does that nicely enough, yeah. but I'm, there's not much else there. And, kind of, and from a, for a director who, you know, he his metier has often been finding very personal moments in tiny, tiny things. I mean, the, uh, you know, the before trilogy, which is basically two people wandering around talking to each other, and it's great. And you go, okay, you know, this means something. There's an importance here. There's nothing. There's nothing of import here. You never feel, and because they're, they're college kids rather than high schoolers, you never. It's that weird change escalation because you're in high school. You know, everything is important, and the fact that you've you've got people wandering around with paddles is like this is the end of the world. And it's like here, it's like, eh, you know, but it, it, 
Well, one it's thing that's nice. made clear that all of these guys were the top players in their high school, and now when they get to college, they're just one of many good players. One of many people who were the top players, I, and some of them were better. And yeah. But the, uh, there is a fun thing, and they do kind of pull the... Um, they, they pull the Big Lebowski trick. They never play! You never actually see them play. You've seen like a little bit of, of, of they're practicing. They, they, aren't, they aren't even in the season yet. That's yeah, and established. That's, and that's, but that's kind of you know. You would have thought like a lesser director and lesser writer. I think would have gone there. Uh, Let's have a game. And like they go, nah. And like the most you see them actually hitting balls is actually when they when they got the guys taped up to the yeah. to, to the boards. I, I, I mean, I this is this is fun enough. It's, it's fun, but it's limited by its five day structure. That's very little time in which these characters can evolve, and you feel like they've gone through that journey from adolescence to young adulthood. It's very rushed, but you know what? You're going to have a good time with yeah. this. It's and there's the mandatory, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's just one party scene after another. Yeah, there, really. there are going to be some people who go, this is really sexist, and, and the language is really inappropriate. Oh, like, yeah. It's, That's how we talked. It's, yeah. Women were chicks. This is this is ninety. I mean, like some people are going to be annoyed about the fact that it is accurate. Yeah. And I, I will never get angry at a film that is accurate. And I think if you're going to get angry about that fact, then you really are missing the point. And a few people got upset because there is one black player on the team, and yeah. you know the, what was entertaining was that somebody found. Uh, when uh, Linklater was at Texas State, they found the baseball team that he was on, and there was one black right. player on yeah. the team. This is 1980s Texas, folks. Yeah. Black people did not go did not go to the majority of colleges. It was still segregated. So you know, it, this is it, it's know, not implausible. Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's factual. Yeah. You know, this is like I think you know, and you know, I've spoken to Linklater briefly about this, and yeah, there's a lot of stuff which is very very autobiographical in here. You know, it's it's fun, it's light, it's good summer watch at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is... Mid-card link later is better than most people's mid-card. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing. If, if we were talking about somebody else, we might be harsher, but really, uh, you could I think, easily I think we were talking about... Actually, I, I personally, if I was talking about a lot of other directors, I think I'm, I'd probably go a bit easier on them, because you, oh, know, you so kind of yeah, expect a little bit more from, more from Richard. This, this is good, it's not his best. Considering he cranked it out so quickly, I mean... It's a testament to the fact that the man just set out to make the movie, got it done, and hey, he had a, he probably had a really good time making it, and you'll have a good time watching it. Speaking of things that somebody clearly had a good time making, oh but you my. may not have as good a time. Uh, <laughs> I hope somebody had fun with the this. swinging cheerleaders. Oh, dear, yes. There are times where stuff appears, and you kind of go, yeah, what exactly is, is the market for this? Who has suddenly People decided- who like tits. Which you don't even see an awful lot of. This Which is, is strange, yes. This is classic 70s, grindy... There's a lot more sizzle than steak. I mean, they probably sold the hell out of that title and some poster of a buxom, a buxom young lass. And you know what? You're going to see a lot. You'll see some... Uh, this is basically a... The best thing I can say about this movie is that it's better than it needs to be. Yeah. They haven't quite cracked the exploitation formula yet. They actually bother to have something like a plot and some characters who seem remotely plausible. Uh, a young journalist, she is a 70s feminist, she decides to well, infiltrate the cheerleading squad to write this hit piece about sexism within the cheerleading uh, group and then finds out that there's actually 
some kind of skullduggery going on between gambling and football plays. It's, there's actually a plot here. There's actually a story. It's not a good story. It's not terribly original. But any other film would have just had chicks uh, disrobing every five minutes. They had it figured out that's what people were paying well, to see. No, this is the weird thing because... I think the, re- the the real reason this has been re-released is that this is directed by Jack Hill, yeah. who a lot of people are going to go, I kind of know that name. Why do I know that name? Uh, well, you know that name uh, because The Wasp Woman, which was you know, one of the, you know, one of the last of the... Of the, last of the of, uh, well, technically, it was in the 60s, but one of the last 50s monster movies. Uh, a lot of blood women bath, in prison Spider Baby, House of Evil, mm-hmm. Snake People, which is really good, Big Dollhouse, Big mm-hmm. Birdcage, and then the back-to-back double whammy of Coffee and Foxy Brown. He goes yeah. straight from Foxy Brown to this. And this is such a fall-off after that. I mean, this is... I mean, this is kind of one of those ones where you get... It's, it's it, in the same way as every month, some, it's an ensemble with a lot of subplots. It's just mm-hmm. all the subplots are sleazy. And the fact that, you know... All the women just kind of go. How do I use my sexuality to get stuff achieved? And you're like, oh, this is very forward, think- forward yeah. thinking, which is really. And in fact, the way they got around that was that um, Jack Hill and his co-writer David Kidd actually took pseudonyms on the script so they could claim, oh no, 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 this is modern and feminist. And the uh, 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 Jack Hill wrote as Jane Witherspoon. <laughs> And David Kidd wrote as Betty Conklin. Um, so they were like, no, 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 this is women writing about women. And it's like, nah, this is just, this yeah. is just sleazy. And it's not even super sleazy. It's no, like, it's not. In it's fact, the, like, it's weirdly tame. It's not only tame. The one or two sex scenes are almost actually, I have to say, they're almost tastefully shot. And almost. Seem, people seem to be having a nice time. It doesn't seem like a disgusting, foul thing. And then you go, oh, maybe these people are treating sensuality in a very nice, pleasant way. And then you'll cut to another scene where somebody will go, hey, Debbie upstairs giving everybody on the team blowjobs. I'm like, okay. All yeah, right. So they, they can't a, quite grasp, and then balance they're not, that. They're not, quite sure whether, it's not, not quite sure whether it wants to say that uh, the... The jocks are misrepresented, and like yes. you, they're actually the nice guys. And, and the, the liberal hippie turns out to be the evil a gang guy. rapist. Uh, yeah, yeah, a gang like, rapist. Which is which is a moment where you just kind of go, oh. The rest of this film just feels like a like a weirdly oversexualized Dukes of Hazard episode. <laughs> and that would be then, much more entertaining. And then suddenly it's like literally it's like ah uh, yeah that girl's been drugged and uh, thrown to a bunch of hippies. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's just a very weird film that I'm not quite sure. It, like, yeah, it's like it's it's aged really badly. You could get away with this stuff, and it's you know for Jack Hill. I, and there are people who try and claim this is a classic. It's like. I'm sorry, you can't put this next to um, something like... In, if you coffee. listen to the... Well, certainly not on the same level, anywhere near the same level as coffee, but if you listen to the commentary, Jack Hill and the moderator, they do refer to classic. Uh, they do at one point mention that, you know, nice! this, is one of, this is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite films, and one of the first films he ever screened, and this was like the early entry in the 70s cheerleader genre, which... I didn't realize there was a cheerleader oh, movie genre, but I guess there is. Uh, cheerleaders and hi- cheerleaders and hitchhikers very big yeah. in that era. Plus, there were a lot of films where they would actually change the name, oh, uh, and actually, it's sometimes where you, yeah. you go and see a, a, an archive showing of something, like it'll have the credits, and then it'll have like cut in title card, mm-hmm. the musical dropout, and it, it looks like a handwritten title card. Well, that's because it was uh, because what a lot of places would do is they'd have a a, a drive-in triple bill 
And they'd have three films. It'd be like swinging cheerleaders, cheerleaders in heat, and truckers who go past a college was the third one. And they changed the time, and they'd find something yeah. which had just enough similarity so to lock in. in. Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, I mean, this is I, for completists of the period. This is not one of those ones that's ever appealed to me because I'm, I'm just going. Kind of, Ah, it's it's okay. There's yeah. there's much better Jack Hill that I think deserves yeah. much better treatment. Spider yeah. Baby. And, Spider uh, Baby. I'm just going to say Spider Baby. And I just want to do a little shout out because we've got more than a couple. But this is also uh, on Arrow Films, which has been re-releasing a lot of interesting little cult films. Yes. And we've, we've reviewed a number of their discs lately. And regardless of how I felt about Swinging Cheerleaders, I had to respect that. Once again, Arrow's put together a good oh, presentation, Arrow. a nice slate of special features. I mean, oh. if you really want to see this movie, this is the best way to see it. I want to see them get the rights to some better Jack Hill stuff. Yeah. Or, uh, I mean, Arrow releases are always stellar. They're always spectacular. These things are always overloaded with special features. They're kind of the, the high the high end of sleaze version of Shout Factory. You know, um, and, and their packaging is always great as well. I'm a firm believer in what Arrow does. I just don't think this is one of their better films. Yeah, well, you know, they have to go with what titles they can get. Moving right. on to you know, a, a, a guy, another director who you, sometimes you go, oh, are they really yes. good or are they just sleazy? Yeah. And I think that, that Paul Verhoeven is a director that I'm, I'm never sure whether I like him or not. I've often I conceptually like him. Yeah, I, I like the idea that Paul Verhoeven exists. I love the idea that in the late 80s, early 90s, Paul Verhoeven was actually a bankable blockbuster director. Uh, now he's pretty much gone to Europe now, and I, I think Hollywood has lost him forever because, frankly, the guy's so deranged, I can't see how anything in this tentpole PG-13 demographic four-corner approach to filmmaking could ever encompass well, a talent like Paul Verhoeven. Also with Verhoeven, yeah, I'm never quite sure whether he gets what he's doing sometimes the classic one for me is Starship Troopers oh, yeah. where everybody says oh you know it's a satire on military culture and I'm like it may be a satire on military culture but it it's also very fetishistic and there's moments mm-hmm. where I watch my own and I'm like I don't did that shot mean what you thought it meant to do? And it like, and, and when he's and some of his stuff, he's never I, like. I don't think he understood Total Recall at all. I don't oh. think this is a man who understood what what Philip K. Dick was doing at all. And he just went, "I'm going to do a, a trip to Mars movie yeah. and some weird ambigu- ambiguity, but not actually enough to really." But it was a fun trip. To it's Mars a fun movie. trip to Mars. Whereas um, Tricked is one of the strangest little yeah. releases this year, not least. Because the first 40 minutes of this 90-minute feature is the making of Tricked. Because what happened was that Verhoeven, who seemingly had heard of this thing called the internet, (laughs) um, went, okay, I've got a writer who I really like. Uh, We're going to do the first three minutes of a short film. Like a 50-minute mini-film. Uh, which is you know, clearly a bad idea because that's not a format that really exists. Um, yeah, if you want to, you want to make a film that won't get released, make a fifty-minute film. <laughs> Unless you're Paul Verhoeven and go yeah. forty-minute making of. Well, this was so actually done they, for television, I believe. Oh yeah. In, so in what Europe. they did was that they said, "We'll write the first bit, and then we will basically crowdsource the rest of the story and move forward from there." So even we don't know where we're going. Like, and it's like it's it's it's. Basically, the exquisite corpse of filmmaking. Yes, what is, is very entertaining about this 
is that A, Verhoeven did not realise how many people would want to get, wanted to take part. And there is a lot of him suddenly going, oh god, I've got 400 scripts to read through for the next <laughs> three minutes of this. And some of them have got a lot of... Re- and I thought, like, maybe it would have two worth talking about. And they've all got really good stuff. Ah, what do I do? And then people would send in, like, they'd see the script, and they do their own video takes on it. Yeah. And you'd suddenly have to go, oh, they've got this... And it, like, suddenly something that was going to be like this light little experiment, you can see him getting increasingly frustrated yeah. with it. Well, it was also, I think, part of them, some entertainment website uh, in Holland or some parts of that around there. And, it, yeah, it was basically like a contest. It's like, you will film your little section of it, you'll submit your writing. Verhoeven was the only director who was actually going to film the whole thing from beginning to end. It's not on this disc, but somewhere out there, there is probably a, the same version of this script with like 10 different casts, with f- 10 different directors. And I would have loved to have seen that version. I, yeah, they could have done something like the um, uh, uh, the people who, who redid Star Wars, yeah, like basically crowdsourcing exactly like that. three seconds at a go, and you could put it all together. I mean, there's a vast amount of material. This is interesting, the. You know, it's surprisingly actual, cohesive when it actual, all comes together. Well, I think that's because you know you've got a you've got a team there. You're not just crowdsourcing everything. Right. You're pulling everything back and you're cherry picking through a, a bunch of people, which I, I think is because if you just look at it in and of itself, it's like well, that's an okay talent play, I guess. It's about a uh, yeah, uh, an industrialist played uh, by Peter Block who is you know had an affair with his secretary and now he's being pushed out of his own company by one of his partners and it turns out that his secretary who turns up at his um, uh, at his wedding at his um, sorry at his birthday party it turns out she's pregnant spectacularly pregnant suddenly eight months pregnant but his daughter and her friend and her and um, her, his son start to suspect that something is amiss there's lots of stuff going on between them I mean there's a lot packed into this yeah. and it, it, the fact that it's coherent and works and you know everybody's slightly sleazy if there's one thing I didn't like which is the Verhoeven touch is yeah. that none of the characters are really like them yeah there is, there is one bit where I was in the final shot this is a year. Like the last year has been a lot of people being too on the nose with their final shot, and the final shot actually kind of bugged me. Uh, but the, you know, you know, it is an actual turn to camera and go a a moment. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, fuck you. But you know, it's a fun little little twisty thriller. You know, you know what this without, is? without it, it, uh, and it's not violent, which for Verhoeven is quite, quite well, rare. It has a great visceral moment, which I won't dare spoil. But don't think that Paul Verhoeven has gotten completely soft either. Oh, no. This is this is actually akin to like a romantic screwball comedy of the forties, only with depraved, dysfunctional people, sex, drugs, menstrual blood, and some horrible visceral moments of body horror. Yeah, uh, although they're brief, they're effective. So, yeah, it, it is fun. It all manages to fit together. And I, I would like to see what Verhoeven does next. He's one of those directors who, like you said, you kind of love him, hate him. Even when you like him, you're not really sure if you're on the same wavelength at him. But he at least <laughs> puts out around, interesting work. You would want him around your house every probably, day. He's probably a delightful man. Just, Speaking of people who yeah, are reliably informed, are delightful men. George oh, A. Romero. Oh, yes. Now, you know, sometimes we'll get sense discs. And there's a, a making of documentary on it, mm-hmm. which is so long. You're like, you may as well just release this as its own. Yeah. Film. 
It's a super bargain. Well, Just Desserts, the making of Creepshow, actually was originally released as an extra on... But the thing was that the rights, uh, the international rights were all weird, so it got released internationally as an extra, but it was never released in the US. Uh So uh, the... uh, the guys at uh, Synapse and uh, Richard Films, who uh, do a lot of the extras, particularly for Screen Factory, uh, they finally went, you know what? Screw it. Let's just release it over here. Let's just put it out in the States as its own documentary. It is completely worth it. This it's is, a, this is the first time I will genuinely say this. And it's, it's very simple. This is pretty much everybody who was involved in the making of the classic uh, 1982 um, anthology horror creep show. Uh, talking about making Creepshow. Yeah. That's it. With a bunch of extras, a bunch of great behind-the-scenes footage. I mean, it, this oh, is a loaded also, disc. Also, one of the best things that's got on here is yes. it's got Scream Greats Volume 1, Tom Savini, right. which is uh, Fangoria did a very, very brief... I think they did two, because the second one completely tanked, because nobody wanted to see it, because uh, it was about, you know, satanic horror, you know, the satanic panic, and this was, like, in the middle of the satanic panic, so nobody was wanting to see it. So it was kind of a bad idea. But, but this is Tom Savini yeah. in 82 talking about his career to that point and you're like in 82 the guy had done everything oh yeah he was already a legend in 82 and he comes across as really great yeah you know the opening line where he's talking about you know i'm like a contract killer i'm sent to places <laughs> to uh, i'm sent to places to murder people yeah like and he you know wonderful shot of him with a shotgun it's like a clear reference to his to him getting his head blown off in mania this but the, you know this is really fun the yeah. only person who's not involved in this is stephen king yeah but Everybody else is in, like literally down to yeah. If they're alive, they're in here. Somewhere. Pretty much, yeah. Key grips. Key there, grips. There are two grips are interviewed. Yeah. I've never seen two grips in yeah. Two. One of, <laughs> one of whom just tells nothing but salacious stories about managing to, about using fake um, uh, uh, star signatures oh, to, yes. to to get laid. You know, it's like. Wow, you were a horrible person. But that is a funny story. It is a funny um, story. But yeah, this is you know. Creepshow is one of those ones that I I like Creepshow I don't love it but this was fascinating yeah. this was really entertaining and, and the great it puts thing in is context. after like what over 30 years now almost 30, 40 34 years yeah. it's almost that, 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 that whenever you see a lot of these behind the scenes things you know on disc today everybody seems contractually obligated to speak nicely of one another and, and you're not going to get any of that here after 30 40 years these guys genuinely had a good time and they could talk about it. Yeah. So it's not like, wow, Hal Holbrook was such a dick to work with. No, they genuinely all really well, liked is, working with one another. This is the other thing. I mean, they, the, the behind-the-scenes stuff they show, you're like, everybody here gets along. Yeah. This was clearly a happy set. Everybody knew what they were there to do. Clearly and a, a nice great cast. Oh, a phenomenal cast. Everybody was involved in this. But this is, you know, this is a DVD, this is a Blu-ray extra with... A whole lot of... Blo- I mean, this is what you get. It's a behind-the-scenes documentary feature with a freaking audio commentary. Yeah. Audio com- commentary uh, with uh, Michael Felscher from yeah. Red Shirt Pictures, who I think is great. Um, audio commentary with uh, uh, actor John Amplers, property master uh, Bruce Howard Miller, and makeup effects assistant Daniel Frucci. Uh, the Savini documentary I, also has a commentary. Yeah. Uh, and that's an hour. Yeah. Um... Uh, behind the scenes photo gallery vintage 1982 evening magazine segment shot on, on set uh, Sean Clark uh, from mm-hmm. um, from Horror Hound Convention yep. doing his uh, Horror's Hallowed, Hallowed Grounds yeah, he goes to all the locations which, which is really great uh, 
uh, on-set footage, uh, in addition to the Tom Savini doc, oh, there's yeah. uh, behind-the-scenes on-set footage stuff. with Tom Savini. Extended yeah. interview segments with George A. Romero, Tom Savini, and Br- uh, Bernie Wrightson, Wrightson, who is lovely among the nicest people I think I've ever met in comicdom. Um, you know, this is just great. It, this is, if you if you like Creepshow, um, this is unmissable, particularly because, like I said, this is never released. But even if you've got an import disc, honestly, pick this up mm-hmm. because this thing's great. Yeah. My this only is... regret is it didn't come packed with you know Creepshow because by the end of this, I wonder what to watch Creepshow. So yes, actually, a uh, quick note, um, Creepshow. Which is wonderful fun. It's not my favorite anthology horror of all time, but it was a great attempt to bring back the old EC comics vibe mm-hmm. without having the rights to right. the EC characters, and they do it so well. And I, it's got use of panels and comic art and cutting into in out in and out of you know at film footage, and then using backgrounds to suggest splash pages. They actually did something aesthetically with that comic look. That no filmmaker, I think, at the time had ever tried, yeah. and had never really tried to do until, frankly, Ang Lee's Hulk. And the thing is, and it does it better than Ang Lee. It does it better than Ang Lee, and it's actually fun because, unlike, say, Ang Lee, who was coming at it from like, okay, like this anthropologist, like, how do comics work? Why do the Americans like these panel? George Romero and Steve, they just love this stuff. It's in their blood. They breathe it. So it's much more natural. I, it's, you, know, you really need to pick this up if you love yeah, Creepshow. And, and Cre- like I said, Creepshow. Even if you got, don't like Creepshow, it's entertaining. Yeah. But Creepshow, you've got a handful of really good shorts. It's written, you know, it's a perfect combination. Written by Stephen King, special effects by Tom Savini, directed by George yeah. A. Romero, design work by Bernie Rice. This is, there's nothing to and not We like. have reviewed a lot of horror anthologies, but and they usually are mixed bags. This works so well because you have one team doing the whole, whole thing. thing. This is the closest thing to an auteur horror anthology you're going to get. Yeah. Uh, speaking of auteurs and staying on the topic of, of kind of legendary filmmakers oh yeah uh, and, uh, it's something that's actually been floating around in the UK for a couple of years because this was done uh, by the people responsible that it's about basically this is uh, Ray Harryhausen's special effects titan yep. um, if you are if you don't know who Ray Harryhausen is uh, he was the master of stop motion special effects you know he Sinbad, the Sinbad movies, um, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, Jason and the Golden Fleece, um, Twenty Thousand Fathoms. You had uh, Clash of the Titans. Yeah, yeah like he was the, the absolute one. master. I mean, he he was. There was Willis and O'Brien before. Willis, him. O'Brien, Willis O'Brien kind of set Stop. everything up, yeah. and then Ray Harryhausen comes in and goes. Okay, I'm going to dominate this industry for the next forty years. Yes. I think he gets out when he sees that there's nothing left to do. Yeah, I mean, he's he's you know gone as far as he can, and you know he that is you know, and he was the only he was the only special effects guy ever who his name is more important than the yeah. director. He is often referred to as the as an auteur and. Unlike today, where if you go see a movie and you see like you know five hundred animators listed from half a dis half a dozen different you know effects houses, Harryhausen did everything from the concept art to the sculpting to the final execution to dealing with the post production aspects. The man did everything from beginning to end, usually in his garage, and also pitching story ideas 
I mean, there's never been an effects artist who had that much individual impact on a film. The films themselves may not always be great, but Harryhausen's work was always great in those films. I mean, it does explain some of how he did it, but it's mostly just going, this guy create, was, was so important mm-hmm. for how direct, you know, future directors would start to conceive of what they could do within a fancy environment. And a lot of this is, is either him just sat there going, well, I did this film, it was fun, um, or other directors going, you have no idea how important his stuff was for me. Yeah. You've got James Cameron, you've got Guillermo del Toro, you have everybody... You know, so Dante is in here, yeah. Peter Jackson, uh, and Steven then, Spielberg. And, and in fact, you know, as, as they point out, if you want to know why... You, when you see a dinosaur in mm-hmm. a modern film, the tail always thrashes. Yeah. It was because of, of him. Like, he created how we conceive yeah. of dinosaur. Because in Valley of the Guanji, he wanted his dinosaur yeah. tails to flash around, flap around all the time. Now, everybody, that's just kind of been absorbed. And you, but when you, and that maybe sound like, you know, somebody going, oh, you know, that's him saying that. But There's when you've got Dennis Muren, the Dennis guy who, was the, who created T-Rex yeah. for Jurassic Park, going, oh, yeah, no. Like, that's just we gotta, the We've got to do it like Harryhausen. Yeah, this is this is or a Phil Tippett, who was one of the last great stop motion animators, yeah. is in this, and he says even today, oh, guys working digitally when he's working with his animators, he's like, you know what, you're doing this way wrong, you're too complicated. Go to Harryhausen. Yeah. Look how he would have done it. Yeah, just direct, simple, full of character. Now Harryhausen has been well documented for decades. There's nothing terribly new here. The one thing I can say about this, again, another great Arrow release. It is. It's probably has the last on-air interviews with Harryhausen himself before he passed away. You have a who's who of directors and film uh, special effects masters coming to talk about him, and you actually get to see for the first time in high definition. You get to see the the, the concept art that he rendered yeah. himself. And you get close-ups on the models, oh, and beautiful. they're actually more gorgeous than when they're moving. Because when they're moving, you're just kind of lost in that moment. But to actually see, and these things are sometimes, some of them are big, but some of them are only about you know a few inches high. But when you get in close, and you see the amount of detail that one man yeah. put into all of those puppets, it was it was him. He was a one, his, it was him. It was his father. And built, maybe one guy. Yeah, his father built the armatures. Yes, uh, he did the actual work. His mother uh, would the make the costumes, and then, and then he had somebody who pre- who did the camera for him. Yeah, that was, was it. He and this was you know this was laborious. It was beautiful, and this is a you know a, an homage to a master. It is, however, done by the uh, Ray and Diane Harryhausen sure, Foundation, yeah. so it's obviously but, the but, but it's also more diplomatic than he normally was. I was talking to uh, a friend of the site, Matt Frank, and he said he did. He watched it. And he said he was pleasantly surprised because Ray Harryhausen. Seemingly would never skip an opportunity to bitch about rubber suit kaiju monsters. He, he hated them, <laughs> yeah. and this was you know here they cut the. Like, there's never anything negative here. No, no stuff that he didn't like in the industry. He's just like I did everything I wanted. Did I was rich. I I went home, and he got out when he realized that he was never going to be given that opportunity again. All of these filmmakers that are interviewed, I should add, not one of them ever says, "Boy, we wish we could go back to doing things the way Harryhausen." Did. No, no, they're all they're like, more than happy with their new technology, but they do all acknowledge that something was lost which was that human touch if you love the man's work or if you don't know who he is you'd owe it to yourself to check this disc out something I, I, I uh, saved you from having to watch Uh-oh. not because it's bad but because it's okay I've seen superheroes what yeah, is this this is comics with an X ah. beyond the comic book pages uh, this is a 
Well, it's automatically off to a problematical start by going, we're going to be a an 85-minute history of not just American comics, but also of um, fandom. Which is a lot to fit into 85 minutes, and it doesn't do it spectacularly well. Mm. Uh, there is a huge amount of material, and it, and it, it does try to, to put everything... If you don't know the history of comics in America, and like the evolution from the Golden Age to the Silver Age, the contemporary stuff, through you know, Marvel and, and Image, uh, it's very Marvel and Image heavy. Okay. Um, it's it's got a lot of people like there's endless anecdotes from artist after artist after artist and you keep looking at it and going like you know what if somebody had done something sensible like told the people who made this to do you know what what uh, VH1 did when they did their History of Metal series or mm-hmm. well, sorry their Metal of History series and so done comics a history this could have been really good I mean PBS uh, did a that and I think it was like three episodes. I think it was like three hours long when it was oh, you finally could, done. You could go on forever with this. The problem is there's before. so much material to fit in, and you just feel they didn't do it justice. It's okay, um, you know, if you are a big comics enthusiast, particularly kind of mid seventies through to um, you know birth of Image. This is probably for you. Uh, but it's it's not great, and I was like, I kept thinking, there's so many bits of this I could that you could put together better. Mm-hmm. It's like suddenly halfway through, it goes off on this big bit about cosplay. And I'm like, what? Yeah, that is its own topic. And there's a huge amount of extras on, which are kind of clearly they had a much longer cut that wasn't working because this stuff was just crammed in there, and they just went, well, okay, well let's. Do that as deleted scene. Uh, there's a huge amount of that. The big selling point for this is actually there is a bonus disc uh, with uh, extended interviews. Uh, one, uh, you know, one one-hour interview with Stan Lee and one one-hour interview with Frank Miller from before when Frank Miller became a you know, hideous, unacceptable <coughs> crypto fashion. Um, you know, those are probably the the. The real reason for buying this. I mean, obviously, people are always going to accuse Stanley of, you know. It always bugs me that people kind of go, oh, Stanley only came up with the ideas for Marvel Comics. Yes, idiots! <laughs> Shut up! Look, we all know that work for higher contracts suck, and a lot of the early comic artists at Marvel and Timely got screwed on that. But it was work for hire, they knew what they were doing. Stanley Stanley did the sensible thing and kept ownership. That's why you, that's why Stan Lee's rich. I hate to be harsh about this. He also know, outlived everybody. Yeah, and I know people are. Gonna, and also, he wasn't crazy like uh, like Ditko. Uh, and also, he did know when. He, I mean, this is the, the other thing that this reinforces is that there's, you know, he knew when the right person the right person to use. He was a great talent spot. Mm-hmm. So you know, is he, you know, the famous story that originally he gave Spider Man to Kirby. And Kirby came back with some pages, and he went. And Stanley went. You don't know what this character is. You don't get the character. You don't understand what it is I want. This is just wrong. You made him big and muscly. He's not supposed to be big and muscly. He's supposed to be a weedy teenager. And calls Ditko. And Ditko goes, "Yeah, I get it." And the first, you know, Ditko does it. At, you know, the final page of the final issue of Tales to Astonish. Uh, and, oh, no, amazing Tales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, it's the thing that suddenly becomes this massive success because he knew what it was. And that was, you know, 
people go, oh, well, it was Ditko. It's like, no, Stanley knowing what to do. Stanley getting uh, being a great publisher, which is, you know, uh, he understood what the game involved. But yeah, this is this is okay. It's not great. The best thing about it is the is the two interviews. Okay, moving on to. Oh my god! I've oh, forgotten yeah. how much fun this was. Yet another Arrow release. Okay, okay. this is a good a good week for Arrow and a lot of packed a very packed disc. This is oh my god the film that has no justification for being as, as awesome as it is. I had forgotten how much fun this piece of crap is. <laughs> Return of the, the Killer, Killer Tomatoes. Tomatoes. Yes. Yeah. So bad, it's great. This is, this is a film that embraces the fact that the first one was shitty. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, the first one's kind of shitty and a little bit funny. This one goes, oh, the first one's terrible. Like, we know we didn't manage to make that one work at any level. Fuck it. Let's just embrace the crazy. This is famously the one where George, with George Clooney, mm-hmm. uh, who is deadpan brilliant in this. Yeah. Uh, the basic idea is idea. Um, <laughs> I feel I feel squalid using that word. Yeah. That a scientist turns out a way to make tomatoes into humans, played by John Aston, of course. Played by John Aston, who chews every piece of scenery he, around I don't him. Think he didn't, I don't think he knew how to be subtle. No, he really did. He did, do a, he did do a couple of dramas that he was pretty good at. You, you could actually harness him, but here, obviously he had a director who was just like, hey, John Aston, I loved you in that show. You, you, I loved Adam's family. Just do that, but bigger. Louder. And, and louder. And boy, does he. Yeah. You know, this is... Bonkers, trauma esque mm-hmm. nonsense. It is wonderful fun. And also an absurdist uh, piece, too, because it's constantly breaking the fourth wall. You're seeing the, the film crew. There's there is, lots of gags about product placement. It's a there movie is, that is, knows it's a movie. There is a lot. There is a lot. But also, the first 20 minutes is actually outtakes from, is actually footage from, from oh yeah. um, Attack of the Kill Tomatoes, with everybody going like, and is this all this is going to be? Is just outtakes? Like, like what the hell is going like, on? That's what you do when you got a no budget filmmaking, you know. And yeah, they actually run out of money halfway through, and that's where the product placement and then the product placement cover. And, and that product placement ten minutes is brilliant. Yeah, and you know, I'd forgotten how good. If it was. you listen to, uh, and I'm blanking on the director, the the man who wrote and directed the original. Uh, Attack of the Killer and Tomatoes. He's sort of the mastermind of this series. His bread and butter is actually doing uh, promotional films, industrial shorts, and commercials. But he has this little thing going on with the tomatoes that he will occasionally, every few years, come out. I think they're up to like four in the series now. And uh, he's John DeBello. John DeBello. And he says, he says, I do them because they're fun. And they're, I don't take them seriously. It's me and my friends writing this really goofy movie. And he said yes, when there, it, there is Attack of the Kill Tomatoes Return of the Kill Tomatoes Kill Tomatoes Strike Back and Kill Tomatoes Eat Fraps yeah, that's right and uh, and he talks a little bit this is actually a very good audio commentary as he talks about some of the ways that the film was made how it was distributed how it came out just at the right time when home video was taking off and the 
and of course, they all talk about how great it was working with Clooney. Yeah. He was the only person who really went on to have much of a career afterwards. Much? Much of a... Uh, Any. Of anything. But but this guy actually is doing fine. It's just filmmaking is not his primary source of income. Uh, he mostly does like commercials for like the Department of Defense and industrials for major government organizations. You know, Herschel uh, Gordon-Lewis literally wrote the book uh, on direct mailers. I... Not at all shocked by so that. That's, that's, he, Herschel Gordon Lewis, you know, uh, Wizard of Gore, Gore Girl Girls. Yeah. I mean, these were businessmen. Literally, he wrote the book on direct mailers. That's what he actually made mm. his real money on. Uh, was was you know, you know, all those pieces of garbage you get through the mail from the, from your bank going take more credit cards. <laughs> that is. You know, he, I knew he it had to be a sleazy guy who came up with that He's, idea. Oh, d- but lovely. You know what DeBello does really well though in talking about this is he said you know in the late seventies. When this came out, he says, Airplane hadn't come out yet. Yeah. A lot of people didn't understand this kind of bizarre, absurd humor. And then he kind of gripes about, like, this whole product placement joke was almost completely lifted wholesale when they made Wayne's World. He's like, I'm still waiting for a check for that. This is fun. It's dumb. It's stupid. It's a great 80s little slice of uh, pop culture. You should check it out. But, you know, just know what you're getting into. Yeah. What else we got in the pile, Richard? Well, let's move on to some... Let's go, let's go classy. This is class. Let's go classy. I see what okay. you got there. I love this movie. The, yeah, uh, I, I am always happy when Kino Lorber really pulls the, pulls, uh, the stops out on the release. And uh, this is a film we both love so much, we'd like, we'd see this again to recommend it to you. Because the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, the original version, yes. not the shitty remake... Screw that. She the, the 42nd anniversary edition, which has just been released. Oh my god, this is still one of the greatest heist movies ever made. It is I, fantastic. I think like this is one of the seventies movies I think I've seen more than anything other than Star Wars. I I actually I have this. I'm excited to see this Blu-ray because it has been out on Blu-ray before. Now I know you might be thinking, oh, I already have taking a Pelham one two three on Blu-ray, but this forty second anniversary edition, which is a perfectly that's a pretty random forty second. Who celebrates your forty second? Forty second anniversary? Street. Oh, duh! Of course, brilliant. I wasn't even thinking that. Mm. But finally, you actually get a, a version of this with a lot of special features. You've got Hector Elizondo being interviewed, David Shire, who wrote one of the greatest 70s soundtracks, which I still regret not that they never put that out on vinyl. I would love to get that. Audio commentaries, historians, trailers. If you already own this, you probably, like me, have the bare bones version. It looks great, but has nothing no supplements. This, though, looks like it's going to be the definitive version for a while. Uh, if you don't know the story, this, uh, it's, it's so simply brilliant. A gang holds up a subway train mm-hmm. and basically says, we will execute somebody, uh, a, a hostage, every minute unless you accede to our demands. And it's Robert Shaw leading up the, uh, leading up the, uh, the gang. Mm-hmm. And Walter Matthau as the uh, he's the MTA uh, 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 inspector whose job it is to bring these guys down. And if you watch this movie, there's like a who's who of seventies character actors. Oh, it's, it's so fantastic! Great. But it's, you know, the great thing is that it's it's two people in different rooms yes. trying to work out what the other one is up to and trying to outwit each other constantly. I love those. And when you've got Shaw and Matthau. At the peak of their abilities, oh. there is nothing bad about this film. This is a great edition. Yeah, it's it's a great film. This is one of the you know, if you if you put a gun against my head and said name the top 
ten movies in the seventies. It probably you know this is is easily in that list. This oh, is yeah. a phenomenal movie that I think is kind of a case you gets overshadowed by something like you know the French Connection, which is bigger and louder and fancier. Or I think it's been rediscovered or, or, or over the, the Godfather years, because yeah. again, it's kind of, Godfather has that level of complexity, but as a, a pure visceral piece of noir thriller. And a great 70s time capsule at a time when the city was really in bad shape. And you really feel that, that New York is falling apart and everybody hates it. And, you know, of course, why wouldn't you rob, you know, a million bucks from the city? So I think it's one of those great movies where you're actually... It does that trick where you're actually rooting for the bad guys, but you're also rooting for the good guys to catch them. This is a a fantastic movie. Um... I can actually not originally conceived of as a movie, but actually uh, a, a a TV play, mm. uh, more uh, more accurately described, is the uh, the stars production of the Dresser. Yes. Now, if you don't know the Dresser, it was originally I don't know when was the original. Version? It came out in 1980, I believe, as the stage play in the West End, and then in '83, uh, Peter Yates uh, directed a film version, uh, which was I think Oscar nominated for. Uh, 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 for both at lead actors, Albert Finney and uh, Tom Courtney. And here, those characters are played by uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins and Sir Ian McKellen, respectively. And yes, I call them sirs, because one character is always referred to as Sir, who is this imperious, uh, aging actor played by uh, Anthony Hopkins, doing some of the best acting he's done in a fair long time. And his dresser, his sort of personal assistant, played by Ian McKellen, who gets everything out of this actor just by, through flattery, through casualing, through mothering, through babying, whatever he has to do to get this guy on stage to give a performance. And as we find out over the course of the film, all of the characters in this play are somehow indebted, or their whole lives revolve around this central actor-director character who is clearly nearing the end of his clearly, powers. Clearly and delusional. Like yes, and, and all of this while happening during the Blitz. Can't remember what play he's in. No. He's done so many, he no longer knows the lines. And well, yet, he knows them, but he but, but doesn't know which it, show he's the, supposed to be in. Uh, uh, there's a, a great, not Les Dawson, um, Eric Morecambe, who's a British comedian from the 70s uh, was one of the great uh, British comedians with, in, with a guy called Ernie Wise um, and uh, one time they had Andre they were big enough that they had Andre Previn the, the conductor appeared on their show oh. like they were the biggest thing and uh, they had this moment where Andre Previn comes in and is conducting the orchestra and Eric Morgan walks up to the uh, uh, the piano and starts playing and it's just it's a mess it's like oh blah 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 and uh, Andre Previn goes, no, 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 you must stop. You're playing all the wrong notes. And Eric Morecambe goes, Mr. Preview, I'm playing all the right notes, just not necessarily in the right order. And there's very much that thing. <laughs> that he's, he'll occasionally start, halfway through a speech backstage, he'll start going into Macbeth, when he's supposed to be in Lear. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the choice of Lear is like uh, no, very no. clearly... The Lear, there is a kind of almost meta-narrative happening here where he's trying to do a performance of King Lear while bombs are falling on England. 
you know, the audiences are huddled and, you know, ceiling plaster is falling. And yet the show must go on, of course. And while he's having this emotional, nervous breakdown in his dressing room, his dedicated stage manager is saying, we have to cancel the show. His wife is saying he's not good enough to go on. And it is Ian McKellen's job to get this man ready, emotionally uh, ready to get on stage and give the performance of his life. It's hard to talk about this play without, you know, revealing the sort of Lear uh, subtext, because obviously Sir is the Lear character, and McKellen, the dresser, is the analogous uh, character to the Fool. And you kind of have to know King Lear a little bit to pick up on some but of these it's notes. It's a very manipulative relationship. Yes. That's what it really comes down to, because McKellen's character, he is defined completely by his relationship Mm-hmm. Uh, with Sir, and he, he was only referred to as, as Sir, Sir, which we is which itself is an affectation. But yeah, this character but it's very is very much a period, and it, he's you know, an actor manager in the whole. Uh, uh, I, I, the thing that I liked most about this was was the the central performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Ronald Harwood, who wrote the, uh, the script, uh, adapting his own original script, is actually he's gone on record as being a little bit pissed uh, about this because he originally thought he was going to write it for. Uh, stage and this was going to be a stage production um, but it was a stage production it no. was a stage production originally well, no, originally but this new version was going to because he made var- the various oh, tweaks oh, with okay. it and there are some so they were going to remount some, it there are some very significant changes yes particularly at the end um, also a l- at least one pivotal central relationship is changed mm-hmm. and that's the relationship with the, uh, the stage manager and that is altered quite dramatically Mm-hmm. Um, and that is quite significant, uh, but the ending is 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 subtly different as well, uh, particularly from the film from the Finney Courtney film version. But he actually was going. This was going to be a an updated stage uh-huh. production, uh, and Hopkins basically has gone. I don't like doing a stage anymore. And yeah. he put the kibosh on that. He's very public about how he hates being on stage. He does not he like refuses it. Refuses to do it. So he was just like. Uh, okay, no, it's going to be filmed. And you know, uh, uh, Harwood has been a little bit public about, you know, he was he's not happy about that because he thought he was doing one thing. Yeah. And, he and, and this script feels a lot more stage-bound than the previous version, which did find ways to get them out of the theater. The entire film is set inside the theater or backstage or in the dressing room. In the 83 version, they did find ways to well, see the, the company moves. Actually, out. it's over uh, it's over two days because it starts off the night before mm-hmm. in a different town and yeah. actually, actually moves. This, this is, feels this a lot more contained, night. and it really it, it you you could see it's why. more stage bound. Yeah, and it, that's not to take anything away no. from it. Uh, I mean, this is this is you know this is fine. There's nothing wrong with this. It's a, you know it's it's two old masters going at it. We've never worked together. Before. Honestly, the best thing Hopkins has done it, in a oh long God, while. Yes, yeah, he's actually making an effort here. I think this is this may actually be the best thing Hopkins done I mean, from an on-screen performance point of view. And I know this is going to upset a lot of people. This may be the best thing he's done since The Goodfather. But oh no, best thing since Coriolanus. Definitely the best thing since Coriolanus. And even Coriolanus was fairly tamped down and subdued. This is a character that really lets him play a few different levels and be big and broad. And I agree. I love Hopkins when he shows up and actually gives a shit. You know, yeah, he's great. He'll, he's the kind of guy, he's an eminence for hire. You can hire him to be in your Thor movie. He'll play Odin, wear an eye patch, and get a paycheck. But to see him actually working along someone who can deliver alongside him like Ian McKellen. It's like watching two great tennis masters just batting the ball back and forth. 
I am not totally thrilled with this adaptation. I'm still the, oh, sentimentally the, fond of the, the previous version. The Far version better. But to see these round. two great actors working together is the, that's worth the price of admission. Well, a, a little bit of a change. Um, one that you didn't get a chance to catch, but I'm actually going to make sure you watch this in case you've never seen it. Um, 1993's Sucha. Now, I remember this coming out at the time, and everybody was like, familiar. the hell is this? This is one of the strangest little movies from that period. Uh, directed by Scott McGee and David Siegel. Uh, it stars um, Dennis Haysbert. Oh, my. Yes. It's one of Dennis Haysbert's first major performances uh, on, on screen. Um, well, this is before or after he was in Heat. Because that was the first thing I ever remember seeing him in, and he had a small role in Heat. Well, this is a lead. this is he is the lead. Okay, um, but he uh, he is you know, this estranged son from this family. Uh, it's not quite. Cl- it, it seems that he's an illegitimate son. Uh, they da- they dance around a lot about that. That he suddenly discovers he's part of this this wealthy family, um, and uh, his brother uh, Vincent goes oh you know you've got to be part of the family now you've got to real, you know and, and the, the reason that they realized they're related was that Dennis Haysbert sees him across the room and goes oh we're identical like we we are alarmingly similar and therefore people just presume that you know we, we must be related well we must be and then it turns out we are well this is where the core conceit of Suture comes in uh, because Dennis Haysbert who plays Clay Arlington is about six foot three in black uh, uh, Michael Harris, who plays Vincent Towers, is about five foot eight and wiry and white. Like <laughs> it's such a weird conceit, but nobody can tell the difference between them. And, it, and it's all about identity, and it really comes down to this core idea of like just because, which was really the, the, the conceit of this film, which is a very simple noir that basically. Um, uh, Vincent fakes his own death by by blowing up the car while Clay is in it, and uh, Clay comes to him in hospital, and Vincent has swapped out their IDs, and everybody's you know trying basically going this is you know this is this guy, um, and everybody thinks that you know and he's but he doesn't remember his life, he doesn't remember being Vincent, he definitely doesn't remember being Clay, so he's basically trying to rebuild a life that wasn't his because he wasn't supposed to survive the crap, survive the explosion. Because the cops are after Vincent for a, a, a for a murder, so there, so, but you've got this whole thing of like the audience is going, well, how can nobody tell the difference? And then about after about ten minutes, you don't care, because the whole thing is these are different people. Now you have to reinforce that a little bit, almost by going, look, it's really clear to the audience they're different people. There's no sense of ambiguity. So it's about just the characters, go, and one of them going. Who am I? And you're always aware of who they are. But over time, he becomes Vincent. This is shot in black and white. It's very, very striking. It's very definitely part of that era that begins uh, with a razor head. It's very much kind of the tail end of 80s experimental American cinema. Um, it's rather glorious. This is one of these ones that I, I do firmly recommend. And if it wasn't for actually uh, the thing, I think we've already decided like is by far our pick of the week. Just uh, this would actually be mine. I I, I have an incredible uh, soft spot for this. It, it didn't hit at the time. 
people didn't. Yeah, just, I would much rather just, watch that than swinging cheerleaders. Why didn't you tell me? Aww, I gave you a treat for like your own. Aww, but I'm I'm very intrigued by this the is, way you this describe is, this, this film. This is Stella. It's yet another hour release. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's beautifully shot. This is a Stella Stella movie. But I'm gonna say that of everything else that's come out this week. Um, this has been a week of the battle between Kino Lorber mm-hmm. and Arrow on quality films, interesting releases. And, you know, quite often stuff will turn up that's like a classic vintage re release mm-hmm. that you haven't seen in forever. And you kind of go, eh, okay. Uh, oh, you know, oh, Red River turned up. Everyone knows Red River's good. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, whatever. The Oxbow incident is. Phenomenal and is without a shadow of my a shadow of a doubt my pick of the week. I have to do, I have to agree, and which is odd because it is the oldest film in this stack by far. This is nineteen forty three, and uh, this is actually again a very good disc. It doesn't have a whole lot of supplementary material. Audio commentary by Western scholar Dick really uh, helps. Documentary by Henry Fonda about Henry Fonda. Uh, uh, an, an explanation of the restoration they did because mm-hmm. this is actually an, this is a Blu-ray release of an earlier mm-hmm. restoration, but it's the first time it's been on Blue. Um, the story is very simple. Uh, a couple of guy, you know, kind of cowboys. Yeah, a couple of cowboys. Uh, uh, Henry Fonda and Harry uh, Morgan. Henry, Henry Morgan uh, come into town, uh, and this and you know they're pissed off because there's been some rustlers. Um, somebody gets this idea. You know, somebody comes in town and goes. One of the local ranchers has been murdered, has been murdered, um, and his his cattle have been taken. And we think we know where these guys are. Let's get a they form a posse. Let's form a posse. And this is very you know this is very simple. It's you have an you have a, a rumor. Everybody's pissed off about something, and everybody's blood is up, and people who could get in the way don't. Yeah, you this is a ca- this is twelve angry men mm, yeah. as a lynch mob. It is kind of a precursor, and it also stars Henry Fonda. I think this was one of his favorite films. And one thing that's really interesting, you find this out in the commentary. Uh, this was made during the height of World War II, so most of the films that came out during this period tended to be crowd pleasers. People wanted to get their minds off of their worries, musicals, romantic comedies, and yes, westerns too. But unlike most Westerns, which had a pretty simple, clear-cut moral message where you could you had white hats and black hats, this is a much darker, bleaker, frankly pessimistic film uh, about human nature. And everybody involved kind of knew that it was a bit of a risk, but they thought the story was strong enough, they believed in it, that they took a chance. And thankfully they did, because really uh, it was nominated for Best Oscar. It lost to Casablanca. We throw the word classic around a lot, but the Oxbow incident genuinely is a classic. This is, this it has something interesting 70, to say about people. It's uh, 75 minutes. There is yeah. no fat on the boat. Every line... Well, there's a romantic subplot I would have been okay without. Missing, I don't know. But I, that's actually, a I actually thing. like that. It works. That reinforces the humanity of, the, of that yeah. character. And if nothing else, it suggests that the women in the town are just as judgmental and harsh as the men in the town. You will see some characters in here that you're going to recognize from other films. There's a lot of classic. Uh, again, Henry Fonda, Henry Morgan. You've got uh, a very young Anthony Quinn. You've got Dana Andrews. 
It's a Ma, the, the woman who played Ma Jode in uh, Grapes of Wrath. It's a great cast. Each of those characters, and it's a huge cast, but yeah. each of them is given this little moment that allows their humanity or lack of humanity to show through. Uh, I don't want to say anything more about it for fear of, of spoiling it, but when I saw this film in, when I was about 19 years old, and I'm just surprised seeing it almost 20 years later, just how well it holds up. And the, the thing is, if you're thinking, oh, this is a 1940s cowboy movie, there's going to be lots of yeah. you know, six shooters mm-hmm. and, and horses and yeehaw. No, this is a, a, this is a, a slow burn dark meditation on the worst instincts of yeah. people there it is it spectacular yeah. I mean like you know honestly there's, there's been so much stuff good this week but to not call this for what it is which is the best thing you will see this week yeah uh, and you know me From like normally I'm like trashy horror this week is is, yeah. is what we're gonna uh, but no this is this is unmissable this is a perfect uh, and t- and very timely and timeless discussion about mob mentality about violence in society about violence in justice about people standing by and letting the wrong thing happen because it's easier yeah and of less risk to them this is this is splendid it cannot recommend highly it's and about a movie about civilization at a time when many people in the world felt like civilization was coming to an end it was a risky move to make back then but thankfully they did and you know Again, I just have to reiterate what Richard said. You got to check this movie out. It's yeah. great. Uh, and another classic. I'm making air quotes with my fingers. Another classic. Uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of at this point now where I think classic because so anime and manga have now become so diffused into American pop culture that people are starting to try and find some of the older deep cuts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of basically the. People are going, still going. There was, there was a world before Akira, yeah, and there was a world before um, uh, Miyazaki, mm-hmm. um, and this really needs exploring. And in a way, yes, but in a way, eh. Now, I have a lot of friends who absolutely adore Belladonna of Sadness. Uh, which is referred to as a, a yeah, many people refer to it as a lost masterpiece. It just didn't get released to most of the world. Yeah. Um, uh, it's by uh, Az- uh, Azama Tasuka and uh, Aichi uh, Yamamoto. Um, it's their take on kind of it's basically the patient Griselda legend of this woman who just like absorbs all the pain in the world and bad things happen to her and it's, like, and it's terribly sad. And you kind of go. Wow, it's just—is this just two hours of misery porn? It yes, really is. it really is. There's it's, a lot uh, of misery. Uh, a young woman, Jean, uh, 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 is uh, uh, the local lord. Who, it's, it's, this isn't set in Japan. It's clearly set in some kind of—it's uh, a fictionalized it's a medieval. It looks like Flanders, you know, yeah. basically. Um, she is raped by uh, the local lord through the act of Duarte Senor. Um, uh, and then the devil turns up and goes, well, do you want to get your revenge by becoming a witch? And she kind of goes, no, okay. And it's very uh, important to real- remember that the devil looks a lot like a penis. He, looks, he is very penisy. He's very penis Very penisy. And he gets bigger and her powers get greater, but she's always like she's always regretting it. And then she kind of floats around and she doesn't really and then have... And the plague comes in. She doesn't really have a personality. No, it, it, it's it's there's a moral here. There's a message I think 
but it's never really take they took so much effort in the visuals that I think the text, the language, the dialogue doesn't really support how what we're seeing oh, on screen. It is, it is because visually it's gorgeous. It is truly beautiful. I mean, this thing is basically. It, it's animated watercolor. Yeah, uh, it's gorgeous from that viewpoint. It is. And this, this is one of my problems with anime at that point um, was that there is something in the pacing. There's something shared with French animation of the era as well, mm-hmm. which is very much you know uh, uh, we'll be talking about that in a second as well. But it it's it's not that it is slowly paced it, it is that it is inherently slow yeah. it is the difference it's not like a scene takes a long time or a shot takes a long time it's just everything feels like it's moving through molasses the the frame transition is so slow and this is the, one of the worst examples of this this really is it's excruciating I think you also need to point out that and this was what surprised me because you had given me a warning that this film could be kind of slow what I was assuming that as you were talking about that it was purely a pacing issue but adding to that is these guys were trying to do something experimental I think they succeeded but perhaps not the way they wanted Again, as you mentioned, watercolor art, it's beautiful. A lot of times you're looking at a still painting. It's a beautiful painting. And then they pan across it. The decision was made not to animate any of the mouths. Um, Rather, they were more like puppets. The characters, you would hear the voices, and their faces would be somewhat static, but you would know who is speaking. That sounds very beautiful and arty, but, you know, an hour and a half of it goes quite a long way. I will say that the booklet that came with the film... Uh, was very helpful putting it in context for me. It helped me appreciate it a little bit more. Uh, it is a quote-unquote classic. There's that word again. So it's worth checking out. I'm glad I saw it, but I have no interest in revisiting it. I think if you if you like early Jodorowsky before he... Mm, yeah, yeah, Jodorowsky's actually a good comparison. Yeah, it's like... It, you know, it's not like a holy mountain... Yeah. Which I know a lot of people who really like it, uh, but I'm like, yeah, I, you could admire it without liking it. Uh, agreed. I mean, it suffers from a lot of stuff from that era that's purposefully trying to be psychedelic. You know, it is self-indulgent and it goes on too long. But stay for the visuals, but if you think that something's wrong with your copy, it's not. They really are moving that still. I, I, you know, a, a very much a follow-up in a lot of ways. Uh, Janus Films has just released uh, a Blu-ray of... Uh, from the following year so these things are in production at the same time and there seems to be a lot of influence between the stars of animation in Japan and, and, and you know the fact that uh, one of the biggest mangas at the time and, and continually has been uh, Blueberry which is yeah. Mobius Mo- who's the Japanese love Mobius I love Mobius I love Mobius, love Mobius as well but, is, but there is a there is a weird synergy between them yeah. and and uh, Psychedelia yeah. because I think that's another connecting Fantastic Planet here. from 1973 aka La Planet Sauvage this is one of these ones where it's 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 really well remembered and it's regarded as important but much like Belladonna of Sadness I don't care I really don't care. I, I could be bothered about this, but I really, really, really don't care. Um, the basics. The basic story is that it is kind of 
a, a you know, Earth has at some point in the past been destroyed, uh, and there's a giant race of uh, blue of uh, blue monsters, well, blue human esque things uh, uh, called the Drags, who've got the last of humanity as slave pet things that they call ohms and one of the ohms who his mother is killed so he's given to a young girl to raise and she does and then he runs away and then the stuff mm. Ugh, it's it's tiresome it's it, it is incredibly important this piece of, you know, it's one of these films that I think a lot of animators have a huge amount of time for um, it is stressfully slow in the same way as Beldono Sadness. <laughs> when you have a stack as tall as ours this week, you kind of want them to move quickly. You want it, you want some pace. Yeah. And again, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, psychedelic substances, therefore I'm not a big fan of psychedelic films. Yeah. Um, and this seems to have all those problems. Indeed. And now I didn't get to see this one. I'm, I am curious because it looks like it's a Criterion release. And uh, no, it's, criterion it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, no, it's Janus. Oh, really? Well, no, it is, it's, it's Criterion. Yeah, it's Criterion. And, uh, well, Janus and Criterion are working. Yeah, they're, they're hand in hand. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a nice new 2K restoration. Uh, it has the English and language, um, uh, English and French language sort, uh, the soundtracks. Um, it's got two early short films by the director Rene Leloup and Roland Tepaul. Uh, there's a 2009 documentary on Leloup. Uh, you know, it is. You know, this, it's a crammed Criterion edition, and this is one of these films that, it, like, so many people have said, oh, it's really, really important. And I see the importance of it, I just don't enjoy it. Yeah, and I, I feel like I probably would have the same reaction. I uh, I have never seen this film in its entirety. Like most people, I think, probably the same people who are extolling its virtues, they've only seen bits of it, whether online or playing at the background at some party well, they while were everyone high. was ha- handing around a pipe. Yeah, yeah, high. But if you sit through the whole thing, uh, I, I fear the worst. Okay, moving on to something that's let's, got a little less pacing issues, got let's, different let, issues. Let's, let's, rock, let's rock through this one. You, remember, yeah. you might remember uh, a few months ago we reviewed a really great little underground horror mm-hmm. called Hangman, mm-hmm. which is very simple conceit. Couple in a house, somebody has broken in and put cameras everywhere in the house. They don't know this. Uh, but he's also in the house. It's all told from the point of view of the cameras. Right. Everything is from the cameras captured there. Uh, it is deeply unnerving. It's one of the most disturbing little films, uh, and it works so well because it's, it hangs onto its conceit so perfectly. 13 Cameras has the same basic idea. Mm-hmm. Couple moves into a, a house um, with uh, uh, P, uh, PJ McCabe and uh, Brianna Moncrief. Uh, she's pregnant. They're having some marital issues, mm-hmm. uh, but they, you know, they're trying to get things done. Uh, where, uh, but their lim- their landlord, who seems a bit creepy. In fact, when I say a bit creepy, I mean comedically so. I yeah. mean nobody would rent for this guy because yeah. you're going like you wouldn't even go like he seems creepy and possibly a little bit rapey. You'd go, how on earth is he going to fix anything? He's described as smelling terribly. Even I mean, he's this shambling, lurid mess. And yeah, exactly. And he has this beautiful house to rent, and you just don't believe that guy taking care of any property. Uh, I agree with you. Hangman had the similar conceit and did it better. This movie is not terrible. It's not. Uh, terrible. It's not. It was made in about ten days. Yeah. Uh, it's very low budget. Everybody involved is very committed to it. It takes place almost entirely within the house. Uh, well made, competent, but a frankly a theme that I have kind of gotten tired of seeing. 
uh, and don't really need to see again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. It's like cameras are everywhere. We know it's creepy. This, you know, and, and uh, I, I think for me, I would have enjoyed this a lot more if I hadn't seen Hangman first. Maybe because so. like, Hangman is it, like, if you're going to do that, if you're going to do the conceit of concealed cameras, do what Hangman did well, and absolutely adhere to that idea. It, it and the fact that there's like it. some of it, and then there's some which is just they do break the conceit. And, and the, I think the, the, and also Hangman they never knew who it was doing it. Yeah, until it was too late. Here they've met. They're assailant. They don't know it yet. And as you said, he is... All of his interactions, whether it's with his tenants or with that guy, he's just buying chain for his dog. You know? Yeah, it's looks so at- over the top. Everybody knows, this guy must be a serial killer. Yet yeah. no one ever says it. No. Yeah, and, and you just don't... There's stuff he's supposed to be able to pull off and you just go, I don't know how you did that because, like, you've been represented as physically incapable of doing anything yeah. and then suddenly now you're good at this like yeah and the payoff just nothing really quite 100% works it's okay it's like, okay if you like if you if you're looking for a good piece of you know exploitation horror at the moment this is pretty good yeah but if you're looking for anything that's really gonna blow your socks off I, uh, it ain't yeah. gonna be this nah. it's not even gonna be close to this it's a shame it could have done better speaking um, of done better speaking of done better I I am a sucker for a good old fashioned Australian wilderness I, horror and the pack is exactly that I really like this I was surprised we have a we had a whole bunch of dog related and wolf related movies this week hang on kids it's about but, to get furry but this one was actually a pleasant surprise it is what I what I appreciated about it was it's elemental simplicity it is a small family they live in an isolated farmhouse in rural Australia we are told that there is a pack of wild dogs that have been taking down local livestock and they have developed a taste for human flesh and they surround the house and the family has to live out the night that is the story that's it we're given a little bit of depth to the characters just enough so that we actually do care about them this they're not just cannon fodder that we're waiting for the quote unquote monster to pick off they you do like these people you wanted them to survive and the best thing about this movie to me is and i'm not going to compare this to jaws because jaws is is an infinitely superior film but like that film this understands how you treat Nature as an antagonist. Yes, it is the dogs. There's no explanation really given for them. They're not mutants. They're not a, a military experiment gone awry. They're not supernatural. They're just dogs, yeah. and they do what dogs, wild dogs, do. And, and in fact, yeah, whenever and he's da- taken down by one, suddenly they get mobbed by the pack. Yeah, this is what happens. Yeah, this is. I mean, it is fairly gruesome in a few places. It but is subtly done and done very well, just the right amount of CGI. What you're usually going to be seeing are real dogs or uh, practical effects with a tiny blend of CG to make it all work. And like again, Jaws, the filmmakers had the sense to go. You know, our whole movie kind of revolves around this one creature. And if we make it look stupid, we lose the audience. So they make the very smart decision of keeping the dogs out of view as much as possible. They use them very judiciously until the end. And, and by that point, they're completely established. You're completely on board with this family. And the filmmakers just wring a lot of tension out of that one location. Yeah, a great big uh, mansion-esque house in, uh, in rural Australia which becomes a character in and of its own right, and I think that works extraordinarily well. Now, everything about this is a real success. This is a, you know, it's not a big film, but it fits very well into that grand tradition of Australia. Uh, uh, you know, the grand tradition of Australian movies that are built around the idea that Australia is trying to kill you at all times. 
Like, the place is, is it's just trying to kill you constantly. This, Every you know, time someone shows me a scary-looking, terrifying creature on the internet, it's always from Australia. Koalas. Even then. Yeah, bush baby. Anything, really. Like, just... Insects, particularly. Oh, my God. <laughs> Enormous spiders, snakes. But, yes, The Pack is a really solid little movie. I really had fun with yeah, that one. Yeah, this is it's hugely entertaining. Great, great way to spend 90 minutes. Um, and now going 360 degrees. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> I was amazed how many how many films and shows have been called at some point uh, the boy who cried werewolf. Yes, that's a really common thing because it's like it's a cheap pun. It is. Uh, I bet you the I bet you the pun existed before they wrote the script. Somebody just put a poster, wrote that on there, and said, "Fine, go make a movie." This is uh, this is the 1973 uh, boy who cried werewolf. Um, which is, uh, you know, it's a little sad because this is one of the last films by Nathan Duran, uh, who directed Attack of the 50 Foot uh, Woman, uh, Seven Voyage of Sinbad, Jack the Giant Killer. I mean, this guy directed a lot of great stuff. Also, some Harry Hells and stuff. Yeah, he was there. a Harry Hells crossover. Yeah. Um, you know, this is... But again, that proves the point that the best part of Harryhausen films rarely had anything to do with who was directing them. This is, you know, this is... It's a weirdly, like, very early 70s time specific thing there's like you know it's basically this this kid whose parents are getting divorced and dad gets him at the weekend and they go camping uh, and then he has to go back to mom at the end of the day and one time they're out and dad gets bit by a werewolf and becomes a werewolf and but of course nobody, nobody believes, believes the that. kid and then everybody gets it's torn like he, apart by it's like he's almost like the boy who cried wolf you it know really nobody believes him it's astoundingly close it, to it, that, it's it? very uh, there must be more than coincidence to that you know no no pure pure coinky dinky this is so this is so of its time there's really no gore so to speak I, I was curious to note oh, that that's rather unfortunately in the Blu-ray restoration uh, you can actually see Cohen um, uh, uh, Matthews, who plays the dad. You can see his mouth inside <laughs> yeah. of the werewolf mask. I believe it. There's a lot of things like that. This, from a technical level, this looks really cheaply made. It, I'm, it's a universal film, so I don't know if that has any significance, but their design for their werewolf... Looks a hell of a lot like the old Lon Chaney werewolf, it, just slightly up, and the same technique, the same transfer date, the whole time technique. lapse thing, which was amazing in the '40s and in the '70s. You're like, really? This is the best you guys can do? Yeah, I mean, uh, we are still, you know, we're about seven years from like the Howling and uh, things like uh, where American Werewolf well, in, in London, London, which just but you would have thought there might there, there might still be something better. You could yeah. this is it, and this is weird as well because it's, it's not scary. It's not scary, but it's just bloody enough to not have been, ex- you know... It feels like a kid's movie. Without the blood, it would have been a kid's, kid's movie. movie. And it, feels, it almost feels like an after-school special, because yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the plot line is, you know, can the parents actually make this work out? Right. And no one believes the kid. Although the you best know. thing about it... I know where you're going. You know where I'm going. And this character, by the way, was played by the writer. Yes. <laughs> there, is, there is a bunch of, of Jesus-freak hippies yeah. wandering around... <laughs> Who can somehow repel the werewolf through the power of Jesus, which they somehow invoke by creating a pentagram? Mythology and lore is very, really weird in this movie. But they are so gloriously over the top. Oh God, it's they're awful. hilarious. And, the, and when they get, when it's they get like that family the local and, sheriff. Oh, like, and it's that's the only moment that actually works because you believe those people don't like one another. Yeah, it, 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 this. 
this shouldn't be as fun as it is. Uh, I don't know if I'd find it. No, well, those moments, those moments are those, fun. Those are, those are, yeah, it because, is because it's that's where that's the only time when it reaches train Lurek level yeah, of appreciation. It's, like, eh, it's, it's, it's of its time. You know, it is, but you know, it, it has the it has the most number of mismatched day for night scenes I've ever seen. They use that horribly. I will say one thing about this film before we move on: that I actually like the premise. I do like the idea of like, and I would love to see a real filmmaker, a good filmmaker, do something where you have a kid who realizes that his beloved father has become a monster. No one believes him, and he doesn't want his dad. He's not, you know, you know it's, he doesn't want anything bad. How he wants to protect his father, and you see that in this film, but it's just so poorly executed. It's hard to care. You, you, you need some something somewhere between this and Fright Night. Yeah, maybe. I, I was thinking more closer to Kronos by Del where you have the little girl who realizes that her grandfather has become a vampire. Yeah. She doesn't stop loving him. She's she just, just like, how do we deal with the fact that Grandpa kills people? And it becomes a very poignant and darkly humorous tale. There's potential in that, if you're listening out there, anybody who wants to... I'm pretty sure The Boy Who Cried Werewolf, the title is not uh, copyrighted, since there's so many other versions of it. So yeah. make that better movie so Richard and I can talk about it one Please. day. Please, we, 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 would, we would have you on the show if you made a better version of The Boy Who Cried yeah, Werewolf. I'm throwing the gauntlet down. Now, surprisingly good. Yes, surprisingly Which I was really, really shocked by. Uh, also almost a kid's movie, but not quite. Almost a kid's movie, but... Uh, Except this, for that heart, that softcore sex scene at the beginning, uh, which is actually the director's cut and uh, isn't in the the theatrical cut. The, uh, this was a movie that I think had a little bit. Of but there was an extended scene, if you'll find in the original home video release, that goes further than that. And He's this toned it down, actually. It's a kind of weird uh, mixture. It's uh, a weird this, little movie. This is Bad Moon, uh, which is um, uh, nineteen ninety six, kind of. Fall off the radar a little bit. I mean, this, this it feels like an '80s film still. Yeah, '96 was was there was so much horror, kind of mid card horror coming out. Um, this, I think, we just felt a little bit dated at the time, and everybody at that point wanted, you know, they wanted teen helmed horrors. Mm-hmm. They what they wanted, you know, Cherry Falls and things like that. That was, that was like the era of those kind of films. This just, I think, it was just at the wrong time, yeah. and now, you, now you're taking out those context. It's actually worth appreciating. It's actually good. Very basic idea is that Michael Paré, Streets of Fire, any of the cruisers, uh, what yeah, the, an actor who should have been bigger. Like every yeah. kept waiting for that moment where he would have his breakout, and it never quite happened. Uh, here he's. It starts with him uh, somewhere in Latin America. Clearly defined. Uh, he, he, well, he's Nepal. He's in Nepal. That supposedly, like he's Nepal. He doesn't. And he's supposedly a photojournalist. And, and actually, in the other, in the deleted scenes, it's credited as Borneo, which so, makes more sense. Which makes more sense. But all that, all you need to know is they shot it somewhere in some forest in you know northern California. Cast some vaguely ethnic-looking guys, and you're supposed to believe we're on the opposite side of the world now. So, but. You know, he, his girlfriend gets ripped apart very, very effectively by a very, very good werewolf. Yeah, that the actually werewolf works. Is phenomenal. Um, uh, he gets bitten, goes back to the US, and tries to basically cure himself, cure himself, and, and hide out. Yeah, um, but is forced because basically he's accidentally killed too many people mm-hmm. um, to go stay with his sister. 
Um, Played by Meryl Hemingway. Yep. And uh, Mason Gamble, I think it was Dennis the Menace or something. Yes, like it was a kid that played Dennis the Menace. I kept thinking, where do I know this little kid from? And the real star of the film... Ah, uh, yes. Thor, the Thor. dog, who is the only person who realizes something's wrong. That's the great conceit of this This is why this film works. The protagonist well, is a dog. Well, the two elements that work about this, because the, the original book is actually called uh, Thor, Thor, and it, it's all told from the dog's point of view. Right. I really want to read that. I, I, I actually do entertaining. I love uh, that idea. But the reason it works is that, that you know, it, it's a, German, a big German shepherd, and Michael Paré, because he always keeps a little bit of the wolf yeah. in his character at all points, because he's very aware of what he is and what he's capable of doing. Uh, he treats the dog like a character, because the yes. wolf and the dog get each other. There is great dog acting in this movie. And, and Michael Paré, you watch Michael Paré and go, It's his this scene is, partner. This is why you was somebody that everybody thought should have been a bigger star. Yeah. That you can take something so stupid as you actually bouncing dialogue off a dog <laughs> and not just sell it, but make you go, I want to watch this scene. I don't want to really watch this scene. It's a mixed so metaphors. It's, it's a cat and mouse game. It shouldn't work. No, it shouldn't. No and Michael Perret makes it absolutely 100% work. And, and the dog acting works too. The way they shoot the dog, they get the performances. Uh, in the commentary with Eric Randy, uh, he says, you know... We shot a lot of footage just to get that dog, get that one reaction. Yeah, most shot. of the time it's like licking its crotch and yeah. looking up to one side. And, but yeah. that one moment where he actually looks at Michael Pere and they lock eye contact, and you go, "Oh, okay." Now suddenly we have a scene between this guy this who is, is playing this ridiculous material against a dog who has no idea what's happening, but it all works surprisingly I, well. This is this was barely on my radar. I was kind of quasi aware of it. And I didn't see it at the time. I'd seen and it on I'm, shelves, but never rented. And it. I'm watching it and just going. This thing's great. Yeah. This is one of the better, definitely most unfairly overlooked uh, mid nineties horrors. I have a, you know if you like that era of horror, yeah. And kind of, there are some bits of it which are which are oh, a there's bit some cheesy moments, and they actually did trim out a lot of the CGI in the director's cut. Yeah, the original wise. cut had a horrible, very early uh, CGI transformation, and everybody. Hates it now. Yeah, you just like even the director, the guy who did the wolf effect. They're like, oh, it's awful. Yeah. So the director's cut mercifully slices most of that yeah, out. The director's cut is longer, but it's actually a lot of that is a lot of that is is restructuring and yeah. kind of stuff. It's, it's a it is it's it is a very different take on it. Um, yeah, this but is yeah, great. Surprisingly this is, good. This is, this I had is, a lot of fun with uh, this. Yeah, so it's the new director's cut uh, and the original cut. Uh, audio commentary by uh, the director Eric Red on the director's cut. Um, interviews with uh, Eric Red, Michael Paré, Mason Gamble, uh, special effects Steve Johnson. Yeah, Steve Johnson. I like the, the practical effects in this. It, I, it proves that Steve Johnson's become a little bit unfairly overlooked. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he had to compete with all the work that Rick Baker and Rob yeah. Bottin had already done. Is, it was hard to go anywhere further with it. But he does a good job. Which this is this is you know this is a fine fine little werewolf movie, and I'm always a sucker for a werewolf movie. Well, you know what? We've reached that point. Uh-oh. Are we going to give something away? It is indeed the... Giveaway! Which yeah. I've never seen. Neither have I. <laughs> um, so it was can... a busy week. It yeah. was a busy week. But there are some things in this world that make you go, you know what? Even if the rest of the film isn't great, this will be great. But Killzone, uh, starting to jar, uh, the original Killzone, uh-huh. is, is really good. Uh, this is Killzone 2. 
Tony Jaa as a uh, an undercover cop uh, fighting off the the Thai uh, uh, the Thai uh, mob in in a uh, in a prison. Um, uh, while he's ne- while he's trying to protect the guy who is a bone marrow match for his dying daughter, it's Tony Jaa kicking stuff in the head in a prison to yeah. protect his daughter. Wait, what? What can because possibly- she needs bone marrow? What can possibly be wrong with that? Yeah. I'm in. I think anybody like yeah, anybody wants a, a good romp. Tony Jaa, even when you were talking about On Back Three, which isn't a great movie, Tony Jaa is great in everything. I've heard nothing but good words about this. This is supposed to be really rather wonderful fun. Uh, so, yeah. Um, here's what you have to do to win this uh, on um, on Blu-ray. Okay. Uh, just follow us on Twitter, at one of us net. Use the hashtag KillZoneGiveaway. Okay. And we want you to answer this question Marco over Damn you <laughs> you, you, you know it's that. coming I know you now you know it's always coming ah, I'm not good at these why do you do this you're a sadist sir yes okay why okay kill zone 2 you you want to watch it okay uh, what you have to do is you have to give stall for time uh, stall for time I'm doing it really well we can always edit it out Okay, no. werewolf movies. Yes. Who would you like to see play a werewolf? Good call. We've had Anthony Hopkins. We've had, you know, we've had Benicio del Toro, Oliver Reed. Great actors who played werewolves. Who would be the classiest werewolf today? Good question. So, yes, to win a copy of Killzone 2, uh, just uh, just tell us who, you, which actor you would like to see it play a werewolf. Uh, tweet us the answer. Gender, ethnicity, no, there's no limits. No limits at all. No limits at all. So... Uh, just tweet us the answer uh, to uh, follow us at one of us net. Um, use the hashtag Killzone Giveaway and this wonderful copy of Killzone Two, starring Tony Jaa kicking people in the head, could be winging your way. All well, right. Well, uh, yeah, we come to the end of the show. Uh, don't worry, I will be back in a couple of months. It's, uh, this is this is not farewell. This is just a brief hiatus while I get on with some other really exciting projects. We. Uh, there will be some new blood on board, some very excited, which we're very excited about because it's always good to have new voices on the show. Yeah. Uh, thank you as always for listening to Digital Noise. Uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, if you just scroll down, you can buy any of the titles we, we talked about today. And honestly, there are some real doozies this week. Oh yeah, fully recommend. Um, and including, if you think I'm completely wrong uh, about um, uh, Belladonna of Sadness and uh, Fantastic Planet, well, you're, you know. Tell us in the comments, please comment down below. We will, we do respond. We we come back and we we check the uh, check the uh, the comment boards and we will talk back to you. We will talk to you on Twitter. Just follow follow me on Twitter at Yorkshire TX. Are you on Twitter, Marco? No. Ah, uh, cannot. You follow me. If you got any questions for Marco, then send them to me. Send them to Chris. Uh, yeah, Richard, uh, or, 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 or just tell abuse yeah. of Chris. So, uh, thank you as all. I respond I to skywriting. If you can pull that off, I'll respond to you. I will be back in a couple of months. Uh, I will miss you all terribly until then. Uh, but don't forget, I, I will still be on site. Uh, we're doing the preacher recaps. Uh, not preacher, uh, outcast recaps. We do do preacher recaps. I don't do those. But we've got the outcast recaps every every week. Um, we're, uh, there will be new episodes of Thumbtacks and Screwjobs coming up in the near future as well. I'll be on... Um, the highly suspect reviews uh, when Chris uh, calls me at an ungodly hour occasionally I'll be on the breakfast club as well uh, so this leaves me with nothing to say but uh, uh, no release is too big 
The release is too small. From criteria to catastrophe, we review them all. Have a great summer. Enjoy.